Now, the purpose statement, you remember, is in the 13th verse. And there John says, if you have believed the testimony that God has given of his son, then you can be sure that you have eternal life abiding in you. Well, as we move into verses 14 through 17, John has finished the proofs of the deity of Christ and the test by which we can know that people are truly Christians. And when it's established that you are in the faith, there are certain conclusions that can be drawn from faith. And in particular, uh, John shows us here that when one knows God and when he has entered into a relationship with him by faith, then he can be sure of this, that he has God's ear. And that's one of the greatest blessings that we have as Christians. That's to know that God is our Father, that God is interested in us, that God loves us and he cares for us. He uh, wants to answer our prayers. He wants to, he's interested in our desires and in our needs. And to really appreciate how that affected these first century Christians, you really do need to understand the the background uh, of their religion, uh, their previous religion. I mean, on one hand, you have the Jews that had been converted and they didn't really understand anything about having a personal relationship with God. Now, even though they called God their father, they never considered themselves, themselves to be in a familial relationship with God. They didn't think that they could approach God on a personal level because that would simply be the height of presumption. And so they didn't really understand uh, this, this personal relationship that the apostles taught concerning God the Father. And then on the other hand, you have the Gentile Christians, and they've just come out of paganism. And in Greek thought, it was ludicrous to think that the gods could ever be interested in man. Their gods were aloof, they were totally disinterested, and there was no such thing as a personal relationship with God. I mean, their gods were manipulators. Their gods were only interested in people for ways that they could use them for their own selfish purposes. And it was with that kind of background that when these people that John preached to and the apostles preached to believed that Christianity was just exciting and refreshing to them. I mean, to understand that there is a personal God, one who loves and cares for you, one who's done something wonderful for you so that you can have a relationship with him, that was really thrilling to the extreme. They'd never heard anything like this before. Now, we certainly do not preach a self-esteem gospel. Um, We do teach, though, that there is a sense of worth in Christians, and that worth doesn't arise out of anything that we are. It doesn't come from human heritage, but we have worth because of what Christ has done for us. Now, those of you that have been here for a long time and you listen to my preaching, you you think probably that I rarely accentuate the worth of of the Christian or, or of the person. I preach constantly about the sinfulness of man and the condemnation of man because of that sinfulness. And I teach that people are vile, wicked sinners that deserve nothing but God's condemnation. And I teach that way because that is a truth that has to be understood before a person could ever receive the saving grace of God. But I also want you to know that our doctrine does include this great declaration that John has made here that once we are saved and once we have been washed in the blood of Christ and we have been made holy and acceptable to God, then God treats us as his own. He treats us as those that are precious to him, just as he treats his own son who is precious, and that's because God sees us in Christ. 
and all the benefits that we receive of God's love and his graciousness come because of this, because we are in Christ. Now, we notice a very striking characteristic about the life of Christ while he was here on earth. He was a man of constant prayer. He was a man that always sought his father's will. He was a man that was always in contact with his father. And so he would spend hours in just sweet communion with God the Father. And he had that privilege of prayer. And he said these words, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. And you'll notice in the last part of verse number 14 in our text that John writes, He heareth us. And what a great blessing that is to know that God hears us. And so in this last part of the letter, John lets these people know that their salvation in Christ is far greater than they can even imagine. Because not only have they been forgiven of sin, not only has God saved their unworthy souls, not only has God promised that they can have eternal life, but God is also presently with them. And God desires to commune with them. He is not impersonal and he's not distant. Now, as we look then at the words of our text, I pointed out that there is a connection between the purpose statement in verse number 13 and the teaching on prayer in verse number 14. And that little connecting word that we have here is the word and. And it starts this way. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. So prayer is a blessed privilege of Christian and Christians, and let, yet it's, it's very perplexing. I mean, we, we pray for things that we don't get. We beg God to do something for us, and it doesn't get done or it doesn't happen. We mark down on a, a list, uh, say in column A, the, the, all of the things, all of the prayers that we have made where God has answered prayer. Then we make a list in column B, and these are all the things that God has not yet answered. And it seems that many times column B is far longer, a far longer list than column A. And yet in this passage, it says God hears us. And as I reminded you last week, this is not a matter of God physically hearing, as if God is deaf at times and he doesn't hear what we say. Hearing here actually means disposition, that God is disposed towards us so that we're never shut out of God's consideration. And the connection between verses 13 and 14 was the first point of our listening sheet, and that is confidence in prayer. Because we have believed and because we have eternal life abiding in us, we can have confidence that God hears our prayers, that he is disposed to consider us and to answer those prayers. And why is it that God is disposed to us? It's because we have been accepted. We are accepted in the beloved, as Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 6. And that only believers can have that confidence because God is not in the business of answering the prayers of unbelievers. If God was disposed towards unbelievers, then he would be guilty of the most heinous crime imaginable. And that would be sacrificing, crucifying his own son and putting him to shame for no reason. 
You see, if any person could get to God and get God's attention and get God's disposition toward him without Jesus Christ, then that means that Jesus' death was meaningless. So prayer is not a benefit for unbelievers. The only prayer that God hears from an unbeliever is a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of pleading for God's mercy uh, uh, and salvation from sin. And even that prayer is not prayed out of a uh, the contrition of the heart unless God has already disposed the person to pray it. That's a prayer that comes in conjunction with the gospel of Christ. And it's not one that would ever arise out of a cold, dead heart that doesn't already have the Holy Spirit's influence upon it. So we have confidence in our prayers, and our prayers are accepted when we come before God's throne because we have been accepted. And those prayers are not accepted until we've been accepted by God. And that acceptance comes because of our faith in Christ. We believe what God says about his Son. And so you could never have a person that rejects the testimony of God and rejects who Jesus is and expect that God would hear him. If you go back to verse number 10, John writes, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record God gave of his son. So do you think that God is going to hear someone that calls him a liar? And yet that is the condition of every person that remains in unbelief. They have called God a liar, and they're not accepted by God because of that. So confidence comes when we believe in God. And God promises to hear us because we have believed. He's disposed towards us because our faith in Christ has made it that way and only because of it. Now, secondly, and we've covered this last week as well, and that's the condition of prayer. Uh, We have been accepted by God and God is disposed towards us because we are still sinful creatures that make mistakes. God hears us in spite of that. He hears our prayers. Now, someday when we get into our glorified bodies, we'll have the sin nature eradicated, and then we're going to be in perfect harmony with God. All of our conversations with God will come out of perfect knowledge, and so we won't ever have to worry that God is not going to answer a prayer or or talk to us then. But because we are sinful creatures, God has placed a condition upon our prayers, and he says the only way that you will get your prayers answered is if you pray them in my will. This is what John says in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And there's a way to do that. Paul Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He said, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness. So how do we prove that righteousness, and what is the evidence of our holiness? Well, John connected those two things with prayer in the third chapter, verse 22. He says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, that's one of the proofs of salvation. That's part of the larger argument of this epistle. And the conclusion of the moral test of Christianity is our assurance that our prayers will be answered. A person that is in the will of God and asks God rightly and is careful to observe God's commandments, then he knows that God is going to answer his prayers. And when I say keep his commandments, that means do everything that a Christian is enjoined to do. Now, for example, uh, the Bible commands us that we are to love our brothers as ourselves. And if you do that, then what kind of prayers do you think that you would pray? When you 
when you ask for the welfare of another person as well as your own? If you obey the commandment of Philippians 2 verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Do you think that if you obeyed that command that you would be selfish in your prayers? No, you obey the commandment and then you will be praying according to God's will. And so those are just some of the considerations that we looked at last week and Perhaps we'll expand a little bit on that in just a few moments. But let's move on now into the third consideration about prayer, and that is conformity in prayer, conformity. Now, we live in a time when our society says, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. Don't follow the the beaten path. Don't be one of the pack. Don't be like everybody else. Strike out on your own, do your own thing, be your own man, march to the beat of a different drummer and all these different kind of sayings that they have. And maybe that works in the secular world and maybe there might be some merit to it, although I don't think there is very much merit in it at all because when people strike out on their own and do their own thing, they're still sinful people and usually those expressions are just different and new manifestations of their sinfulness. And so there is no virtue as far as God is concerned when you express your individuality. Now, we can argue about that one if you want, but that's not my purpose in this lesson. My purpose is to show you that individuality has no place in God's kingdom. God expects conformity, but not as the world thinks of conformity. I mean, for Christians, there, there's a model. There's someone that every Christian ought to be like. And if every Christian is like him then every Christian will be like each other. And who is that? Well, you know him. If you're a Christian, you know him because that's Jesus. Paul says in Romans eight twenty nine, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. In 2 Corinthians three eighteen, it says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, we have to be careful with this, though, because there's some that want you to change into their image. And rather than conformity with Christ, they really want uniformity. And I'm not really talking about the world here. I'm talking about some Christians. Uh, I'm speaking of Christians that think that they are the model. And so you must do what they do or dress like they dress, act like they act. And if you don't, then you're neither godly nor holy. And some of the stuff that is put in place as a standard is not really God's standard. It's their standard. It's things that they ask people to do and expect them to people, people to do that can't be found in Scripture. Now, it's interesting that just before that verse I read, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that Paul says in the 17th verse, now... The Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And the context of that passage demands that there's freedom from the bondage of the law. And so those that would try to impose some kind of a pharisaical system on people and churches that do this, that try to establish new laws that are not found in the Scripture, the Bible would if we had this term in the Bible, it's what we would call legalist. And what they've done is the same thing the Pharisees have done, and that is to add things to the law that aren't really there. So the one that we're to be conformed to is not other people. We are to be conformed to Christ. And in that sense, if we are, we'll all turn out to be alike if we're all just like him. 
And there is no intent for Christians to be cut out of some kind of a cookie-cutter mold and, uh, that some church has imposed because they think they have a special gift that makes them holier than other people. This is not the legalism of the Pharisees, or that, I should say that is the same as the legalism of the Pharisees, and it's also the same as the superior knowledge of the Gnostics. Both of those are condemned in Scripture. But we do have to be very much aware of this, that we have to be conformed to Christ in order to be successful in our prayers. Now, there are two very important principles that are involved in this. The first one is conviction of sin. Conviction. We have to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit as he's trying to shape us into the image of Christ. It's what we call the sanctifying process, and that's where the Holy Spirit is trying to rid us of everything that's in us that makes us unlike Christ. That familiar verse that we read in Isaiah last week says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And if you remember, I used that verse last week in relation to holiness, and this week we can use it in relation to conformity. And that is, you can't be made in the image of Christ as long as there's sin in your life. And when you become yielded to the Holy Spirit, he's going to make you aware of that sin. And I think that there are a lot of Christians that really play dumb in this area. They'll come and they say, well, do you think that this is a sin? And they already know the answer to it. I mean, if they're saved, the Holy Spirit has already given them some some kind of an inkling that that, uh, it's wrong because it's bothering them. And usually the very thing that's bothering them is the question. They're uneasy about it, something that they've done. They know that something's not quite right. It doesn't feel right. And my answer is almost always the same to people that ask questions like that. I just tell them the Holy Spirit is already telling you something. You don't have peace. You're uncomfortable about this because you are under conviction. And what some people do is they just ignore the conviction. And they go on and they do what they want to do. And sometimes they keep on repeating that fence, offense that becomes so common to them that they're no longer sensitive to the conviction. And if the Holy Spirit's convicting you and you won't give that sin up, and if you ignore the direction that the Holy Spirit wants you to go, then you're going to find that there is this, this great uneasiness about your prayers also. Because you'll pray and you'll feel like it's getting nowhere. And you'll think that there's a cap over you. There are the ceilings so as high as those, those prayers go. They bounce off the top and come back down. And why does that happen? It happens because of the lack of conformity. Now, you can think of it this way. If the Scripture says that we are accepted because of Christ and God is looking at you because you are in Christ and that's the whole reason why he's disposed towards you, then think what happens when you become increasingly unlike Christ. When you keep going the opposite direction, you're not being conformed, what do you think is going to happen? Well, the answer to that question is God turns his face from you. He hides his face from you, said he will not hear. And I'm afraid that's where a lot of Christians are living right now. They have no power with God, and that's because they have ignored conviction. They suppress the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is trying to sanctify them into the image of Christ, and they have just pushed that completely out of the way. And when it happens, there's no power with God. So what's the answer to that? Well, the answer is correction of sin. When you ever have, whenever you have sin, do something about it. Correct the problem. You know, his mom used to say, straighten up and fly right. 
That's what my mom used to tell me. Straighten up and fly right, young man. And the implication was, if you don't, you're going to get it. Something's going to happen to you. You're going to get the rod of correction. Now, you need to thank the Lord for this, that he treats us that way. He says to us, straighten up and fly right, because if you don't correct that sin, he will. And just to give you a little bit of a hint about verse number 16, and we're not going to look at that tonight. Uh, We'll get to it later. But he says, there's a sin unto death, and you don't want to go that far. There is a sin unto death. He says there's a sin not unto death. That means there's a sin unto death, doesn't it? You don't want to go that far. Now, in between the conviction and the correction are the teachings that we find in Hebrews chapter 12. And we also looked at this recently. But if you'd go over to Hebrews chapter 12 for just a moment, this is about God's correction and the purpose of his correction. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 5 says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now it's really important that we get what the writer is saying here, and that is we are not to think of the correction of the Lord as being bad. Now, he calls that chastening. He says, don't faint under that. Don't be mad about it. Don't be upset when you're rebuked, but be thankful for it because that proves that you belong to him. And the next two verses bring that out. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. So God doesn't chasten people that don't belong to him. Unregenerate people will have bad things happen to them, but it's not because God is doing it. It's because that's a natural result of their sin. But when a Christian has bad things happen to him, or at least things that he thinks are bad, that is very often the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit correcting him because of sin. Now, verse 9 goes on and says, Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us for their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, there we have the reason for chastisement. It's not because of God's pleasure. He says it's for your good that you might be a partaker of his holiness. And so when you're holy and when you're like Christ, that's when God turns his face toward you. That's when God hears your prayer. When you're like Christ, you ask for the right things. And this is when you can say, like Jesus said, Father, you hear me always. You know why Jesus said that? It's because he was the perfect son of God. He was never going to ask for the wrong thing. And as long as you are conformed to Christ, you will not ask for the wrong things. It's a pretty simple model when you think about it. Verse number 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And there the purpose for it is related to us in a different way. The first comment was about holiness, and the second is about righteousness. Chastening achieves its result. And again, you're going to see that a little bit more when we get down to verse number 16, because one way or another, if you are a child of God, you are going to become more like him. 
One way or another, that's going to happen. And sadly, for some people, it takes death until they finally get to be more like Christ. So this is what you do as a, as a Christian. You are convicted of your sin, and you correct that sin. And the faster that you correct it, the better off you are. Now, folks, I can tell you by experience, I, I, I've sinned. I'm not perfect. I know that stuns you, and you probably won't get over that before the evening is out. But I sin, and there's sometimes when I'm as hard-headed as anybody else. And that is, I know that God convicts me of it, and I'm stubborn about it, and I let that sin go on. And I know this because I've experienced it enough. There's a price to pay for it. And I'm so thankful that the price is not what I deserve. The price is eternity in hell. That's what I deserve. But the price you pay for being one of God's children is that when you step out of line, you will receive his chastisement and be thankful that you do. Now, let's go on here. We've got time to squeeze in one more thought here tonight. Fourthly is corporate prayer. Prayer is not just for you. Prayer is also for others. Now, let's get just a little bit of a taste here of verse 16. We're not not going to get into this all tonight because it's quite a bit to consider here. But let's look at the beginning of the verse. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. Now, we're going to talk about this later, a sin which is not unto death. But right now, I want to talk to you about what surrounds that statement. If any man see, and then the other part, he shall ask. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us to pray for others. Now, there are two important statements that I'm going to make about this. And and after you get these two and you don't make notes, you're going to be terribly confused when this sermon gets cold. Because I'll make a couple of statements here that seem to be contradictory. And unless you have taken some notes to let you know what I actually mean by this, you're going to be very, very confused by it. Now, the first comment here is that you are not your brother's keeper. Now, what do I mean by that? He says, if any man see a brother sin, a sin. Now, there I think that a brother is referring to a Christian. Some people disagree with that. Uh, If it's a physical brother, which I don't think it is that, but if it's a physical brother that's a Christian, that's okay. I think he really has reference here to a spiritual brother. And it's not your job to snoop out the sins of other people. It's not your job to be the holy police force that writes out citations for people that don't live the way that you think that they ought to live. When you have people like that, their their motive is usually terribly wrong. It's not because they care about what people are doing. They don't care about their spiritual condition. What they really are trying to do is to gather a little more fodder, a little more information for the rumor mill, for the gossip mill. And then there are others that do it because they believe that they are the paragons of virtue. They hate sin, but not their sin. They hate everybody else's sin. And they're very, very quick to throw stones at people. Now, they may have something going on in their own lives. They might have anger issues. They may have secret sins that nobody knows about. But they're always trying to snoop out a sin like a bloodhound. And these are people that sometimes will come to me and they've found out something. They'll say, why haven't you done something about this? And I say to them, why haven't you done something about it? Now, that's the biblical response. What are we supposed to do? Let me give you two passages that describe this. The first one is in Matthew chapter 7. I know you should be familiar with. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. 
And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine, out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now all the sinners out there say, yeah, you preach that. Keep preaching that. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. And those folks have no idea what Jesus is saying about this either. He's not saying here that you can't judge. Get that straight. He's not saying that you can't judge. He is saying there is criterion for judgment. And the criterion is that you get sin out of your life. And then you're qualified to talk to somebody else about their sin. And then when you've done that, you can go to the second scripture, which is Matthew 18. And there it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So if you come to me and you complain about what somebody else is doing, and I haven't heard about it, I don't know about it, the first thing that you need to do is do your job. Do what the scripture tells you to do. You go to that person who sinned against you. Now secondly, listen to this. You've got to be very careful about this. Listen carefully. You are your brother's keeper. Well, that's a flat-out contradiction, isn't it? I mean, how can you say you're not your brother's keeper then say that you are your brother's keeper? Well, it's not a contradiction. Because as a believer, especially as a church member, it's your job to help a brother that falls into sin. If you see that person sinning, then you take the right steps to help him. Now, what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. There are many people that are in that condition that do not want you to interfere. And they'll tell you, butt out of my business. Just stay out of it. Don't interfere with me. I don't want your help. And as soon as you go to them, they're going to throw up something to you that you've done in order to try and help excuse their sin. Now, when people are talking like this, they don't want your help. They're Christians. They don't want your help. They're in a sin. That's the devil talking. You have to realize that first. That's the devil talking. You've got to get that out of the way. And so they're going to look at your life. They're going to examine you, and they're going to say, why are you judging me? Don't talk about me, and they'll throw up an excuse as to why they sin, and it's something that's in your life. Now, that's really what helps you to understand the wisdom of what we read over in Matthew chapter 7. Because you're defenseless against them if you go up to them and try to correct their sin and you've got sin in your life. So you do what Matthew 7 says first. You get all the sin out of your life and you start living the kind of life that you should live. And then when you go to that person, they have nothing that they can throw back at you. So you have to be prepared. And it's best to live all the time so that you are prepared. And you watch out for people with a loving heart. You want them to be conformed to the image of Christ. And when you have God's heart for others, this is what you'll do. God's heart is that he doesn't want to see people in sin because God wants to bless them. And you don't want them to be in sin because you want God to bless them. And so you have to guard yourself. You have to watch your own life and see what there is in your life. What kind of sins do you have? So you can always be in the position that you can help that other person. 
And so this is when your act of holiness, when you're keeping yourself clean, becomes a benefit to others because it shows love for Christ if you live right because that means you're in that position to be an immediate help to them when they enter into sin. Now, one final observation about this. If if you look at this word ask in verse number 16, he shall ask, and that's where prayer comes in. And the word ask there is much, much stronger in the original language than we see it here in English. This is a word that means to beseech. It means to be quick and to be earnest, to be agonizing and fervent in prayer. And this comes out of a deep heart of love for that person because you don't want to see them suffer because of sin. You want God's blessing to be on them. You know, you, maybe you probably know this and might maybe not be a surprise, but there are many Christians that really deep down don't desire God's blessing on other Christians. And they don't because they're jealous over something or they're, they're uh, covetous over something that they have. They're not really interested that God would bless them. That, we're not talking about that kind of person. This is a person who has the mind of Christ. You are your brother's keeper because it's your job to watch your brother's back. It's your job to be a means of protection for that person. And you can pray about it. Your life is such that you can pray about their problems and God will correct that and bring them out of the sin. So prayer is not always just for you. In fact, it always should include others. If you look at the model prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew 6, he said, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. So prayer is not always singular, it's corporate. Pray for others when you see them fall into sin. So you, you take this later and you work out this, this paradox that we have here. You are not your brother's keeper in one sense of the word, but you are your brother's keeper in another sense. So we'll stop with that and we'll come back next time and talk some more about this great passage. Prayer is a really a great privilege just to have the confidence that God hears us The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. God is always disposed to listen to his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truths that we learn here. We thank you, Lord, that you do hear us. I pray, Lord, that we would all be in a position where our lives are are such that we are good testimonies, that we're living by your commandments, that we obey you so that we know that when we pray that you are hearing and responding and we are praying in your will. Lord, I pray for every person here that our lives would be what they should be. And we pray for your blessings on this church because of that. Go with us, Father. We thank you for, again, for the time we've had to gather together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand.